לשידור ישיר ממחנה רמה בברקשיירס. כל רמה, מאה ושתיים שלוש, Welcome to another edition of Parsha Talk. I'm Rabbi Elliot Malamet in Highland Park, New Jersey, from the Highland Park Conservative Temple Congregation on Chemet. Joining me this morning, this evening, on my left-hand side, Rabbi Barry Chesler, Solomon Schechter, Long Island, and Rabbi Jeremy Kalmanovsky, Anshay Chesed, New York City. It's great to see you guys. And Bishalach, Parshat Bishalach, Shabbat Shirah. We're recording this at the end of Tu Bishvat. Happy Tu Bishvat, everybody. If you know a tree, say happy to be shvat to the tree. You can actually hug the tree. It's okay, even if you're not a close relative. Mishalach. No, I want to say first. You got to ask first. Unwanted hugs are not nice. This is the most important parsha in the whole Torah. Without this parsha, we don't have a Jewish people. This is like this is like. Uh, I, I think there's something really funny about Dayenu in the say in the Seder. If you had only brought us to the Red Sea. And not let us cross through on dry land, Dayenu. What? <laughs> so we're going to get to this. Ridiculous. <laughs> it's in the middle of our parsha, but we got to start at the beginning. Ridiculous. We got to start at the beginning of the parsha. Paro, you know, the shalach paro ta'am, They're sent out, and so we have to we have to understand why it is that they go on the route that they go on. They don't go on the coastal route. They go. They take a meandering route. Inside, Barry, you want to just elaborate? So it's a longer, short way, I think, as Rabbi Dean Steinsoss once described it. They are not going to go the quick way because God is afraid that they will be too close and they will meet obstacles that will prevent them from proceeding, meaning that there's an element of fear that goes forth here. I'm sure Okay. The Israelites are scared, and they need to be protected. If they go in the shorter way, they're liable to meet forces that they cannot deal with. Indeed. Okay. And talk about for a moment that they are taking with them the bones of Joseph. Aikach Moshe et atzmot Yosef imo. Jeremy, this is one of the, the, the bows that we are tying in the entire Torah here. Talk, talk to us about Atzmot Yosef. Well, first of all, Joseph, at the very end of the book of Bereshit, has made them swear that when they get released from Egyptian bondage, they carry his bones, they're going to bury him back up in, in Shechem like he, like he vowed. And so they, they have to bring the bones of Yosef with them. And there's a wonderful Midrash that, that, you know, of course, our listeners know that the word Aron means both the, the box in which you carry the tablets of the Ten Commandments and the Aron is the, is the coffin in which you carry human bones. And so they went through the, went through the desert carrying two Aronot, the whole people. And, and when people said, would say to them, what's, what's with the two boxes? The, the, the person lying in this box kept up the Torah that was lying in that box. So the uh, generations of, of, of congregational rabbis like ourselves have sent good Jews to burial with, with some version of that. The person, the person in this Aron is a living embodiment of the Torah in that Aron. 
What's so fascinating also, just in terms of the Bible, is that by the time we get to the book of Joshua, uh, the bones of Joseph have, have been accompanying Israel throughout the entire journey, and uh, they are interred uh, as, the, as the Jewish people make their way into the land of Israel. And that functions as a way of, of really connecting the first six books of the Bible, the Torah plus the book of Joshua, Barry. I do wanted to add that the the bones are of critical significance because that is the tangible connection to the land of Israel. Joseph lived at one point for the first 17 years of his life in the land of Israel. And even though he dies in Galut in Egypt, the people know that they have a promised land because they have someone who is there with them. Joseph wants to be buried in the promised land, in part, as I think I mentioned a few weeks ago, because he wants to be buried with his father, but also it is a choice that he makes, that even though he reached the pinnacle of Egyptian society, he ultimately understands that he's an Israelite, a Nivri, and not an Egyptian. And I think it's also true of Moshe, because Moshe also has this conflicted identity. He grows up in the Pharaoh's house, and only later as an adult does he cast his lot with the Jewish people. And he needs that chizuk that even though you could be an Egyptian on one level, you can still die as a Jew. Yeah, but he doesn't. I really like the fact that uh, I, I really, I think, I think that in our lives as Jews, you know, for people who really like the book tradition, and and the three of us certainly really love the book tradition. Uh, there's one way to, you know, there's a way in which Judaism is about entering an intellectual uh, uh, tradition and rabbinic, rabbinic, you know, the the long generations of teacher to student and, and teacher to student and on. And you love Judaism because of the Torah. And then there's loving Judaism because of the family and the people you, from whom you're descended. And so following Moshe Rabbeinu is kind of like following the, the intellectual tradition and entering into a discourse about, about the meaning of Torah. Following the bones of Yosef is like being part of your family. Right. You're just you're 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 an inheritor from your ancestors. And I think that without each of those two things, Judaism is just thin. We need them both. So let, let's focus in on Moshe right now, because because there is this development of the character of Moshe. There's a development of the people. I we were talking before about transitions that take place in this Parsha. So we have. A, a moment, a crisis moment, the, the Egyptians are chasing the Israelites. It seems that the Israelites are trapped between uh, a rock and a hard place, or really the sea, and, and uh, some other fortifications. The Egyptians are coming after them. They don't know where to go. And then they recite, they say, I think the most memorable line of the entire Torah, something that I think on one side gives birth to Jewish humor, at least on the other side gives birth to our, under, our ironic understanding of life. And that verse is, was it for a lack of graves in Egypt that you took us out to, to, to eat out of Egypt to die in the desert? What did you do to us? That you took us out of Egypt. And, and we read it with, I guess tongue in cheek or a little bit of humor, but in in the moment, I, I want 
discuss. Let's let's kind of open. Okay. It up. So I think there's this great passage. I think in Martin Buber's book of Moses, in which he talks about Egyptian painting, how the pharaohs were painted to last forever. They have the sitting posture. They hadn't figured out quite how to do a three dimensional representation of a human being. So their eyes are always off and they exist for stability and endurance. As you mentioned, Elliot, this is a time of transition. The Israelites are not really interested in transition. They want stability. The only stability that they know or think that they know was the slavery in Egypt. And every time they have to do something different, every time they are challenged or threatened, they want to run back to Egypt, which is kind of like the the national mommy, as it were, for the Jewish people. Jeremy, I would take on this, this you know, in terms of humor, I- irony, or, or just, you know, eruption. <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, I certainly, I certainly do think it's funny. Um, and the Jewish people will be throughout, especially the Book of Bamidbar, but, but in this episode too, just a bunch of whiners impossible to please what there weren't enough graves in egypt okay we are we have been telling the story that egyptian slavery was awful it was miserable and and then there's the counter story that you know it just um it looks with rose-colored glasses the food was pretty good it was a rich society and even if we were the bottom of a rich society you know there was the nile there was the melons there was there was all the yummy food and um and I just kind of want to. You, you, I the humor part for me is at least. I, I feel I feel Moshe Rabbeinu's pain. You, know, you want to smack him upside the head and say, "Come on, man." So okay, so there are two real things going on here. First of all, we can't lose sight of the fact that Egypt is filled with graves. Egypt is a society that's based on monuments to the dead. The you know the pyramids were were already around for hundreds of years while the Israelites were there in Egypt, according to the chronology that most of us I think kind of go with. And and the second thing that I want to put out there for your debate is I opined last week that the Israelites go out of Egypt rather uh, compliantly. They not only compliant, but they are eager to go out. They follow instructions. They do so without a peep. They don't even eat. They're, they're on an empty stomach. They bake their bread. They bake the matzah the day after, the morning after. They're, they, they can't believe what's happened. It's just, um, you know, it's, it's just overwhelming to them. So it's the family trip story. Go ahead. You're excited. The family's going on a trip. Everyone piles into a car. You can't wait. Things are going great. You get a flat tire. Well, why do we leave the house? <laughs> so every time they're confronted with a challenge, they fall, the Israelites fall apart. They cannot deal with conflict. They cannot solve basic problems that most of us are trained from an early age to figure out what the solution might be. Is there something pent up here? Is this just is an explosion? Is this a catharsis? Is this, or is there something built into the DNA of the Jewish people? Jeremy, or Barry, I don't know. I don't, know. I, I don't think it's the DNA of the Jewish people. As we were saying before we started recording, I think it has to do with the, with the institution of slavery and what it does to people. That 
you know, we think of the crossing of the Sea of Reeds as a great paradigm of redemption because that's how the rabbis have trained us to think of it. But for the Israelites going through, it wasn't quite that great moment of redemption. You know, they they carried their burdens with them and their burdens did not cease when they left Egypt and it didn't cease when they got to the other side of the Sea of Reeds. They still had to live the rest of their lives and they were for want of a better word, psychological cripples in many ways. They yeah, could not of, escape of, Egypt. Of, of course, this is um, this is vivid because we in our own 20th century, you know, um, times, uh, we, we've all known people who, you know, they should live and be well, maybe never quite left the concentration camps. Uh, Professor Arlidney said, once you enter the concentration camp, you never, you never really leave again. And we know the people who've been, who, who have been scarred by these things. I, I don't know, of course, that I'm right or wrong about the, the DNA of the Jewish people, but it is a little tempting to think that our cultural patterns um, are, are reinforced, that, that we do have a cultural pattern of just bitching all the time and thinking that our leaders are a bunch of idiots and uh, and that is a cultural pattern that maybe it's learned from the Torah or maybe it's something that we had, uh, you know, even before the Torah that, that is just, whose record is just here in these stories. But I, I do think that there is something in the Jewish character uh, to, you know, to what extent these stories teach us to behave that way, to just give, give the leaders a really hard time and say, oh, so what I would like to suggest is the problem. This is the working out of the problem of the invisible God. That this is a critical theological problem that most of us don't pay a lot of attention to in the modern world because we don't really think of God as any other way in a meaningful way. But this idea that you have a leader who hears voices and reports back what God said is is a difficult concept for people because it can only work well when things are working well for you, right? When you have food on your table, you can listen to the God and you can say your blessings before and after the meal, reading the rabbis into it. But when you're starving and the guy says, well, just around the bend is some food, you're a lot more skeptical because you need to see the food. So and play you, that up. Play that out for a second in, in the story itself, because because Moshe's answer to the people is, "Don't worry, stand firm. God is coming. Salvation is coming. that He's going to do today, and just as you are seeing Egypt today, you're never going to see them again. It's exactly what you're saying." God is going to do this for you. And in the very next verse, what does God say to Moshe? So it occurs to me that maybe God is really talking to the Israelites there. But in order to allow them some uh, goodwill, he addresses Moshe instead. That the people he wants to stop complaining are the Israelites. He's done all these great things for them. And they're not very happy. How do you understand it, Jeremy? How do you understand Matitzak Eli? What you know? Why are you screaming to me, Moshe? 
So we were talking before the before the call began. We were talking about the Rashi on that verse, and Rashi a couple of interpretations, but one of which is about that divine human partnership. Uh, God says to Moshe, um, "What this depends on me and doesn't depend on you. You think that this is a free ride? This is not a free ride. You got to do your part. You got to you got to get moving." and demonstrate your own fearlessness, your own bravery, your own willingness to, to engage. So I, I think Matitzakelai, to me, on a religious level, um, is perhaps a... Res- Matitzakelai meaning, uh, why are you crying to me, the divine says to Moshe, uh, on a religious level, stresses that God doesn't... As much as we want to say, uh, you know, that Hashem is the hero of the story, and of course, saves, saves the Israelites... Uh, let's not say, certainly not for us as religious people living in the world, that you expect God to say, I'll solve your problems. Right. Right. You're, you're going to have to take this particular bull by the horns and at a very, at a very minimum be God's partner. And in some cases, even be the leader. So right. there's a time for prayer and a time for action. Now's not the time for prayer. It sounds like a great song. <laughs> Go for it. So, I mean, I think what, to add on to what Jeremy said is that from a religious point of view, God is not the solution. It's a way of framing the question. And too many people want God to be the solution. That once you cast your lot with God, you're set. But you're never set. You still have to wake up in the morning. Uh, that is a great phrase. I'm, I'm going to steal that. If, if we didn't have it recorded here for posterity, I would say I came up with it. Uh, God's not the solution. God is is the key way of framing the question. I like that a lot. Okay, good. All right. So now, but let's go back into the mind of Israel, because they're 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 standing at the the shore. They're being told to go forward. We we have, you know, just a a treasure house of midrashim on this moment as to what what goes on, the bickering that goes on among the people of Israel. Who goes first? And you know, one story of Nachshon jumping into the into the sea first up to his neck, and then the sea splits, um, and and the sea does split, and the people go through, and it's a, this awesome sight. Vayosha Adonai Bayom et Yisrael Miad We say this every day. We we recite this very passage every morning in the Tefillah. Vayar Yisrael et Mitzrayim Metas Fatayam. And Israel saw Egypt uh, dead. Al-Sfatayam. I was meditating on this uh, very verse before and trying to ask, what, what, what do they see? And, and I want to get your reactions to this in terms of what is the reaction to seeing the dead Egyptians? Al Sfatayam, and what is the Sfatayam? What is the bank? Which which banks of, of the sea? They've gone through from one to the other. It's not they're not in the, you know, it's they're not going through, and the the water the the, the shore is on their right and on their left. Well, it is. That's what, exactly what it says. So the water is a a a wall to them on their right and on their left, but the the shore is in front and in back. So are they seeing the Egyptians on the shore in front of them? Or are they seeing the Egyptians on the shore behind them? No. They're seeing it behind them. Behind they them. So come, they're looking across. 
they cross over, they turn around in the first verse, they see dead Egyptians, and then they understand that that was the hand of God. That it's two kinds of seeing. It's seeing visually and seeing as understanding or interpreting. It's just like, for example, if I say to you, Elliot, I see what you're saying. It's not that the words suddenly appear on your chest. So, Vayar Yisrael Mitzrayim Met is that there's a deeper perception here of, of, of the calamity that has happened here. Yes. But, well, it's not a calamity for them. Not a calamity for them. For them, it's, it's salvation. All right. And the other thing that we have to emphasize are the last few words, Vayaminu Baronai Uv Moshe Abdo, that now they trust God and a servant Moshe because they understand that Moshe speaks for God. And this is going to be a trope as a word that plays itself throughout the rest of the Torah because many times they're not going to trust Moshe. And there are going to be times when they want to kill him. And in fact, we have a story at the end of the Parsha where they're complaining and, you know, Moshe doesn't necessarily handle it well. Um, the first hitting of the rock scene. And Moses, his claim to leadership is tested and tested and tested and God has to provide a way for the people to see that Moses is God's loyal servants. And this is one way, because now they could say, we're done with Egypt. Whatever's left of Egypt is on the other side. And we've made the transition to come back to your theme from earlier. Yeah. And we can march forth. Jeremy, how about a reflection on this? Then? Nothing to add. I mean, uh, just, just the phrase, the, the poetic power of uh, yeah. At one level, it means they saw all the corpses washing up on the on the seashore, which is kind of like terrifying. Um, and they saw the entire Egyptian experience yeah. behind them. Now, like Egypt has haunted them, has haunted them, has terrified them, and now it's dead. And we're not going to focus. The, the ways in which they're scarred, as Barry said before, is very correct and vivid. But but now we got a different project. Now we really are free of Egypt. And now the project is head to the promised land and make it through the Midbar. So what you're saying then is that that Mitzrayim met. It's not. It's it's really not just the physicality of it. It's that, uh, and it's back to this whole theme of transition. This is the moment that we are separate from all things Egypt, that we are separate from that, and that is dead to us. It is literally dead to us. It is Tameh. It is dead in the, you know, with all the ramifications of, of death in the biblical mind. And we are alive. We are born. We are, we have the opportunity for, for life now. I think that that, that, seems to be the ultimate transition from death to life, uh, which is why the, the, the next uh, stories are, are, I don't want to say troubling, but they are part of life. They're the, it's the messiness of life. So, I mean, we, 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 are, we are skipping over the song of the sea, you know, not because it's, 
you know, we don't want to talk about it. It's just, it's a, it's a rich, dense, beautiful, poetic, and complicated, um, you know, passage. And even the fact that, that it, it, the way it's written in the, in the Torah, you know, Levena, Levena, you know, the way that it, it appears in the text obviously draws your attention to this is something uh, unique in the text. But immediately after, and immediately after Miriam, we got to, you know, give a, get a check mark here for Miriam. Uh, what happens? By Samoshet Yisrael Miyam Suf, by Yehush Loshet Yamin, three days without water. What, what is going to happen to this people? So we should be reminded when it says they go three days without water that they were supposed to go on a three-day journey to serve God. Yeah. Right? They told Pharaoh, Moshe and Aaron told Pharaoh at one point, we're going to leave for a few days. And now, instead of having this great worship experience of God, the people feel that they're dying of thirst. And the question is, when you're at the mercy of nature, where is your help going to come from? Right? It doesn't seem the longer you go that there's going to be help on the way. Right? I imagine, you know, we're talking about the Sinai Peninsula. It doesn't look all that different from wherever you are. Mm-hmm. Right? You don't necessarily see, if you don't see an oasis, you don't think you're going to see one when you move 50 feet or 100 feet or 200 feet, whatever it is. And I assume on some level it's terrifying because they don't have control. Okay. And so they take it out on Moshe. And 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 I, I gonna I want to go back to another theme of the previous partial, which is the overwhelming sense of failure. The overwhelming sense of 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 I just can't you know deliver for these people. Uh, and and he has got to deliver uh, for them. He cries out to God, and this time God, and so what happens here in this miracle? Uh, they have they have water, um, and then and then again we have a, a, another moment of crisis. There's no food. There's nothing to eat. Um, and from this we get uh, the the story of the manna, um, and that story is with us as Jews to this day. Uh, I want to, you know, if you, Jeremy, want to just tie tie us together with all of this. Okay, so so the people, uh, the people, um, as you said, complain about the food, and Moses gives them, you know, God, Moses gives them lechem min food from heaven or bread from heaven that God is going to rain down upon them. Uh, but one of the things that I think is so important about this passage, which happens, needless to say, before Sinai, is that they get the commandment of Shabbat. Before, before they come to Mount Sinai and get the rest of the Torah, Shabbat and the restrictions of gathering up manna um, are already, first of all, the man is an amazing. It's it's a it's a it's a non regular sort of food. Lechem abirim achal ish says the Psalms. They, the people eat angels' food. That's kind of the superhuman food. But they have to have it only uh, gathering six days a week because Shabbat is just already part of the experience. And then and we were talking about how 
they're past the Egyptian experience. They have a new set of challenges. It's about getting through the desert. But from the outset, the very first story about that uh, is, are you going to keep the proportion of work and rest that is the Jewish pulse of life? Right? You're going you're gonna to do this, but it's got to be uh, working for six days and, and appreciating the rest of Shabbat. So, so let me ask you this question. And here, again, it's hard not to have a, a bit of a smile and, and a chuckle when the, the text gives us this story. It says, You gather it for six days. And the seventh day, Shabbat, don't go. But it was on the seventh day. Some people went out on the seventh day. And so I want to say, isn't that, isn't that the way it is? Isn't that the way it is? Or, or, or is well, it? It's a teachable moment. In other words, the command here is a rule. This is what you're supposed to do. If you violate the rule, there are going to be consequences. Some people hear the rule, the threat of consequences, and decide to obey the rule. Other people hear the rule and say, well, I don't know about these consequences. They're testing the rule. They're testing it. And it's part of an education happens on all levels, meaning that sometimes we're the rule keeper and sometimes we're the rule breaker. I don't think anyone ever goes through his or her life in only one camp or the other. And so this is a way for people to test the rule. And I think what's important here, I think I mentioned this last week, is that freedom here is being defined as subservience to the divine master, not to the human master. It's God who establishes the rules, and those are the ones we have to follow. Oh, and that's that's cherut olam. Cherut aluchot, the freedom is etched into the tablets. The law actually is not its own slavery, even though it's it's like, we were slaves to Pharaoh. And God brought us near to God's avodah. So we are still avadim, but now we are, as, as you said brilliantly, uh, you know, avdeh Hashem instead of avdeh parok. But I think that it is true what you said about the polarity of obedience and rebellion in this story. But I also think that the particular topic of what they are rebelling about is really, really important in this religion, which is to say that uh, that if you are a greedy person, you can never trust that there will that, there, that you'll be okay, right? You will always have to say, I gotta have more, I gotta have more, I gotta have more, I can't stop, I can't stop, I can't stop, I gotta get more mana, I gotta get more mana. And when and when this religion or God or Moshe says to you, guys, it's gonna be okay, just learn to sit still. Um, Shabbat is going to be okay. There's a certain kind of personality that says, what? I'm not going to gather more? I'm not going to gather more today? And that personality, you know, suffers its own uh, psychosis. And the personality that can sit and be still and can trust, that's that's the Jewish religious personality. Wait a minute. So so then uh, uh, let's go to, to Shabbos because uh, at the Shabbat table, you're sitting down, you have the two loaves, and we always say, these are the, this is the double portion of mana that fell Friday, they collected the double portion. So, uh, based on what you said, what, what symbolic meaning are you, are you deriving 
from the Lechem Mishnah, from the double portion? Are you, are you deriving God's munificent beneficence? Or are you deriving a sense of a, a sense of identification with your ancestors to be in that polarity between obedience and, and I'm I'm going with the I'm going with the munificent beneficence. So it's the <laughs> Alex. <laughs> I love a show. I go, I, I go munis, munificent munis, munificent beneficence for two hundred, Alex. Two hundred. Zichron Olivracha. Your Canadian, well, your Canadian is, uh, comrade. With the man, it's the daily double. It's I the man. It's the daily double. <laughs> no, that's good. Um, I I want to say, you know what? Based on what you're saying, uh, if you think about it, if you consider what it's there, it's it's there as a as a multivalent symbol, it's it's well, got it's, a lot of meaning there. It the does. It's not there only for to dress up your table. Well, I think that it has different function at different meals. Okay. Friday night, it recalls that God provided for both Friday and Shabbat on Friday. So we have the second loaf because this is God's provision for our food. But on the second day, when we have lunch, why do we have two loaves? Yeah, no. We have two loaves because I think there has there's a rule, and the rule as a form of obedience becomes supreme. Yeah, but it's it's the it's the the multi anything poetic is multivalent by definition. And okay. The, the people ask the people ask, you know, the reason it's called man is manho. The people don't know what it is. It's mysterious and surpasses well, their understanding. That, that's because you read it as a question. If you read it as a statement, manhu. That's what it is. It is a question. That's already the interpretation. I think no, I think it's a question. No, but whatever, it doesn't matter. But the but no, the right. um it's a little bit like the if if you well you just said Barry's a little bit like the Hillel and Shama thing about the the light diminishing over Hanukkah or growing over Hanukkah. The the Shammai, the Shammai thing is obviously a ruse. They're making fun of Shammai because nobody in the history of the world would ever have said at a winter solstice festival that we should start with a light with a with we should start with eight lights and then shrink. Okay? That makes no sense. It's a winter solstice. It's it's got to grow. And so that that little story about well, the miracle was that there was enough for one day, and then the and then the light diminished as the oil diminished. The point of the double loaves is not we're we're replicating the ancestral experience, and and we had the most food when Shabbat began, and then we have a little less, little less, little less. You know, the opposite is true that the that the poetic quality of it is that there is always in the hand of God going. You know, Savanu vehotarnu. There's there's enough. There's enough, and being able to feel. And, and maybe this was not always true for our ancestors who probably lots of times starved and had famine and had droughts and all that stuff. But in America, uh, not everybody's wealthy, of course, but we, our particular challenge is to learn how to not be greedy among amidst abundance. We could, we could end there, but we have to, we, we, we have to remark that the Parsha doesn't end on that note. The Parsha ends on a, on quite a, a catastrophic note with the the war of Amalek. Amalek comes up against Israel from from the rear, attacks Israel, uh, basically uh, kills women and children. The the, the frail uh, of Israel they're engaged in a war. Israel is victorious in the war, but at what cost we don't know. 
And we're told there to remember that, or it's basically Ketov Zot Zikaron Basefer, Machon Chet There is this idea from the very beginning that there is going to be opposition, uh, violence, hatred uh, of Israel, uh, even murder from the very beginning. I think that, I don't want to say that this is built into the Jewish DNA, but it's certainly built into the narrative that that is going to be there. Go ahead. Yeah, something else. The the story of Amalek provides a counterpoint to the story of the crossing of the Sea of Reeds. In this Parsha, the crossing of the Sea Reeds has two explanations. There is a natural explanation that God caused the east wind to blow all night and hold the water back. And there's also the miracle that Moses raises the staff and the sea splits. And it's striking to me that this paradigm of a miracle actually has a natural explanation. And here, I think it's worth quoting Buber again, who said that a miracle was not the suspension of the natural order, but the way that we understood the natural order working. That just like our ancestors saw the dead Egyptians on one level and saw the hand of God on the other, that was the miracle, that they experienced it as the hand of God. But it happened in nature. With Amalek, we also have two explanations. We have the natural explanation that here Joshua was a superior military man. And then we have the miracle that Aaron and Hur held up the arms of Moshe. And as long as his hands were outstretched, God was with them and the troops could appear. And I think, you know, it brackets the Parsha in part because this tension between nature and miracle brackets our our lives as well. That sometimes we lean towards the miraculous, sometimes we lean towards the natural explanation. We actually need both. And this is probably, you know, this is where where the Parsha ends. I, I I maintain it's a it's the transitional moment. Of course, you know, geographically, literarily, uh, spiritually, philosophically, theologically, we're moving. I get we're we're moving into a new a new phase with uh, with our people with Moshe. We're moving into Shabbat, and we're concluding this moment together. This time together. First of all, our friend. Barry Chesler, Rabbi Barry Chesler will be Rabbi Dr. Barry Chesler come Sunday. Mazel Tov, Mazel Tov. Receiving the Honorary Doctor of Divinity from the Jewish Theological Seminary of America. So we are really proud of you. You've been an amazing, amazing rabbi for the last more than 25 years. Mazel Tov. Thank you very much. I look yes. forward yeah. to welcoming you back with your doctorate. Jeremy, you got a couple of years to go? You. <laughs> we'll see if I make it. You'll make it. You'll make it. In the meantime, it's Shabbat. So we want to say to everyone, Shabbat Shalom. And thank you so much for listening and watching. Shabbat Shalom, everybody. Shalom.
93 FM